Cobram Estate is the most awarded Australian extra virgin olive oil. Let it be the hero when entertaining family and friends. Cobram Estate extra virgin olive oil is fresh and full of flavour. Perfect for roasting, frying, baking, dressing salads and for dipping bread. Make your food taste even better with a little help from Cobram Estate. Premium quality, great tasting and a versatile healthy alternative. Buy in store at all major retailers. Welcome back to Dylan Friends. This is the best bits snippets of health and mindfulness of 2021. This has to be, oh, it's hard to split them all, but this has to be one of my favourite genres that we do on the show. I think, well, I hope you know that it's just a common theme and we don't really ever try and like bring it up in every conversation, but I feel like it just finds a way now to come up all the time. So yeah, can't be, can't be more thankful and blessed and honoured to get all the incredible messages from you all each week about how much these might have, um, you might have enjoyed these types of episodes or how much they've helped you because please know they are helping me just the same. Um, the guests that we've had, you know, access to have just been second to none really. Like these are like world-class people that it, it's hard to even get a booking with. So I, I, somehow we've bloody landed them and we're just sort of faking it till we make it and who knows what's really going on. But yeah, this has been an awesome part of the show. It'll never change. We love it and we just want to get so much more of it. So if you have anyone else that you like or you listen to or you read or you've you've seen on a bloody show or a podcast, please let us know because we'll um yeah, we'll try and track it down in 2021. Hey, before we get into it, um I mentioned this in the best of sport episode, but Spotify have something cool that's going on now. Please, uh, if you listen on Spotify, if you listen on iTunes, you can now rate and review on both shows. It helps the podcast so much. Um, if you've got nothing else to do on the holidays, please consider doing that. It would be absolutely incredible. Five stars would be huge. Thank you so much. Please, please, please. Love you, Illy. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, episode 81, we had Emma Murray on. Emma Murray, Emma Murray. She is the best. She actually, I'm not, I don't want to name drop this, but she literally called me the other day. I nearly fainted. She called me. She just said, thanks so much for the year. She said, one of her highlights of 2021 was coming on the podcast. Can you believe that? She said that. I didn't record it, but I swear to you she said that to me Jazz was even in the car she heard it it was so cool we're getting her back on next year we're best friends love you emma yeah she really set the tone for the whole year to be honest just wisdom and knowledge and and her story she's unbelievable and yeah if anyone hasn't listened to the episode I'm, I'm sure you do if you listen to the show but if this is your first time listening welcome secondly emma murray's the goat listen to that episode she has her own business at health performance mindfulness she works with richmond been just an absolute you know star in their transition of, of this mindfulness space and has also worked with so many other professional athletes it's not funny she's yeah just absolutely she's so sought after and speaks about just being the best version of herself and I think the one thing I love about Emma the most I say this a little bit is just how make she just humanizes mindfulness she doesn't say they have to meditate for four hours a day you know she, she just says find out what's best for you and also you know you, you're not going to get it right all the time. You're going to stuff up. You're going to to have faults, but just keep at it, and and it's about consistency. So yeah, really love this chat. She's she's been huge. Make sure you check that one out. Episode 86, David Butterfant. David Butterfant was one of my old high performance managers at Carlton. He also worked with Collingwood. You know, one of the like the first. Um, high performance managers to really really take things to the next level and he's been absolutely huge in the AFL he was um, one of the guys who took everyone over to Arizona in in the states and was a pioneer of high altitude training but along with that his biggest thing that he talks about is resilience and I remember that was his main messaging as a high performance manager was putting players in the most difficult circumstances to then grow resilience from and nothing's changed now he runs his own business called Resilience Builders which he takes groups, you know, on these trips all around Australia and even to base camp when 
when COVID's not happening at, at Mount Everest. But I'm actually going on a camp with him in February with a couple of friends. And we're doing a trip to Tabletop Mountain in Tasmania. That's not right. It's called Cradle Mountain in Tasmania. And we're doing a, a couple of days resilience camp, which I'm fucking petrified for. But yeah, it's going to be awesome. So that'd be good. Basically, he talks a lot about resilience and um, it's a continuum. You know, you're always just developing it. It's not something that, you know, you get good at it, then you don't have to be resilient anymore. You'd, you've always got to be resilient. And then he has some of the coolest little mind tricks that you can check on. So please check that one out. Episode 120 with the Imperfects, Hugh Van Kallenberg, Josh Van Kallenberg and Ryan Shelton, who are the just unbelievable in this space. Obviously, the author of, um, of you know, Hugh is a re- the author of The Resilience Project. And yeah, had them, you know, they came on Dylan Friends. We had a podcast crossover. This episode came second, I think, this year in the BNF. So please check this one out. I spoke a bit about, you know, my resilience and and the you know the script got flipped back on me and and they were asking the questions episode 121 with dan price this episode was really really special again one of the ones that i've had so much feedback on this year and he was really overwhelmed as well dan price is is a um mental health advocate he's had you know a really incredible journey himself with his own mental health and speaks a lot about that in his podcast he um, unfortunately got to a really really dark place and things really escalated for him but you know it's his story to tell please check that one out he, he talks a lot about the power of listening and, and supporting your friends and, and how to best seek help and you know his journey now in life is to just support people he also runs bloody ultra marathons he ran a 160k race which is you know, I want to get him on again to talk about that sort of thing, which is really interesting to me now. Um, friend of the show, Hunter Johnson, I think he's been on twice or three times now. He just dominates. He spoke about um, healthy masculinity, which is something that, um, you know, I think we've all been a victim of, all males, that is, have, have been a victim of, you know, just growing up and, and not knowing how to best be a man. And Hunter, you know, really explains that better than anyone. So I, I really, really um, would recommend any young males, please listen to that show. You know, he does a lot of awesome work in schools and he's someone that we're going to keep getting on the show always because we we love what he's about Lin Jong from the Western Bulldogs you know recently retired AFL player um, suffered a lot of uh, injuries throughout his his career and and also had some some mental health um, adversity that he faced and 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 you know, he's just so open and honest of his story and wants to help people now going forward. So yeah, please listen to that show. He was awesome. Again, I don't want to keep harping, but a lot of people love that one. And I know he got a lot of incredible messages that have, he's helped a lot of people from that. Episode 123, Hunter Johnson and Zach Seidler. Uh, this was an awesome chat with with the boys. We said Hunter Johnson before, but Zach Seidler is the global head. No, I'm going to say that again. Zach Seidler is the global head psychologist, head of psychology for Movember, okay? That is not his title at all, but it's something like that. It's extremely impressive. It has like 10 words. You know when you've got a title, it's like 10 words, you're very, very high up and uh, he was awesome. So he's a, a you know a psychologist, a, a very good one at that, but spoke a lot about staying true to yourself. And one thing I always love doing with these podcasts is, yes, it's awesome to talk about mental health, but I want to always give everyone uh, or always make sure that we hit some points to take forward to like to go from it's like all right cool that was great about mental health tell me how i can get better and one of the ones that i love the most was with zach we spoke about being proactive versus reactive so being proactive with your mental health and seeking things out before you actually get to the stage where you're reacting to something happening please yeah that that was awesome i love that so being proactive over reactive and yeah these episodes as i said again like it's awesome getting all guests on and they're unbelievable these ones genuinely have changed my life so cannot thank these 
incredible people enough to come on the show. I hope you enjoy them. And yeah, if you like the show, make sure you go back and have a, uh, have a listen to the full episodes because these are just like the smallest little snippet out of shows that you could enjoy. Love you all. Thanks so much. You. Episode 81, Emma Murray. I want to start with one point though that really just resonated with me. You said about mindfulness and your B game. Mm. So is, is that just ref- like your analogies here, but A game, B game, B game is when you're not in your prime, I'm assuming. So you were saying then like you can, because I fall into that trap too. It's like, I'm tired. Why me? You know, I don't have enough time. But I've found, and I hope this is correct. Um, Are you nervous? I am a little yeah. bit. <laughs> but when you practice mindfulness and you've got strategies in place, like you said, whether it's your breath or a trigger word or whatever that is, you're still going to have those B game moments. But if you've got those triggers, you just snap out of it quicker. What we're talking about, so if we look at Richmond Football Club 2016, you know, the last game we lose by 100 points, we're 13th on the ladder. Um, Not Not (laughs) 8th. Not eight. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the the public are calling for the board to be sacked, the coach, the captain, rebuild the whole thing. So from 16 to 2017, they didn't do any of that. But what they did was, using that A-game, B-game analogy, well, let's – how do we get more players in their A game quicker for longer? That's your gains, right? It's like if you can get be in your A game quicker and longer than you were the moment before, then that's where you find these performance gains. You don't have to get fitter, stronger, um, you know, do more practice most of these athletes, they're doing all the work. They are, you know, as fit as each other, as strong as each other. They've got their skills in place. Now we have to, as you say, get into that state, you know, quicker and longer. And that's where you uncover, you know, 13th to premiers in one year. Now that wasn't just my work. They have, you know, an incredible leadership consultant. We know about Dimmer and, um, you know, Trent's journey. And so the whole lot of that created an environment which enabled these boys to stay in their A game for longer. Is I've been at a club, two clubs of four, and we've had the same things, okay? You know, we've had mindfulness coaches, we've had all these other things, but they haven't necessarily worked like your program and Richmond's program did. Do you know why that would be? I have a theory A theory, yeah. Because it'd be hard because you (laughs) haven't not worked, so you don't know what doesn't, I suppose. Well, yeah, no, I, I... I have been in places where it hasn't worked. So I can see when it works and it doesn't work. And um, there are a few things. One, um, we had a coach who made a decision to really embrace it. So what we see in a lot of places is the coach, the administration, the the leadership. It's like, we're all fine. Like, look at this – we're the captain, we're the coach, we run the club, so we've clearly got our stuff together. If you could go and fix them mm. down there, that would be really good. Yep. Um, but that wasn't how it worked at Richmond. So Dima and Koch, they embrace it and so it, it comes from the top down. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is the piece of gold, I think, what Richmond did better than any other place I've ever seen, like any other workplace I've ever seen, is they bring it, they have the courage to bring it into everything, every conversation, every review, every training session, every weights program. 
it fundamentally has this language around A game and B game and what we can control. They change the way they review from just reviewing. You can't say to someone, so this whole concept of um, performance mindfulness is that we all we can bring to the moment is our best. And we what we talk about is best executing in the moment. When we best execute a moment and when you accept that that's the best that you can bring, then great. That's not how it works in sport. We, You players bring your best and then the coach gets out the stat sheet and goes, well, your best wasn't good enough, so could you do more, please? And so then that is, produces a lot of anxiety because it's like, I don't know how to, how do I do that? Motorsport is a classic for this when you have a driver who, um, you know, they make a mistake on a corner. So next corner, they will always talk about, I got to make up ground. Well, how the fuck do you do that? Like, if you, you know, it's like I, I would have that many fights with Scott McLaughlin going, your best is your best. And if you've got, you know, a bit of time in your back pocket, then clearly you're not bringing your best. So if you let go of that corner and then you just concentrate on bringing your best to this corner, but that's not what they do. They hold on to that mistake they made. They overdrive and then they put their car into the wall. Essentially what Richmond have done is they had the courage to let go of stats and um, outcomes and focus on execution of the process. And and going, there, there were games that we lost and you go, well, that was best execution, so great. You know, I think it was um, – uh, I feel like our backs have been against the wall against Geelong in a few finals, but not the most recent one, 2000 and – 18, 18 19, yeah. One of them. Yeah. Um, and Geelong were playing unbelievably. We come in at Oh, this is when Cochin did that um, crumbing goal and like spun. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah, incredible. right. Yeah, I remember this. And and so you come in to the rooms and it's like, yep, they're really good. Mm. It's, it's like, yes. So what can we do to continue, you know, we're doing a really good job. So – you know, that's hard for coaches. They think they've got to motivate you and crack the whip and do everything to get more out of you when sometimes the best is all you can bring. So our attitude in that moment is keep bringing the best and trust that our best is good enough. And then that's when oppositions fall away and everything. You know, I, you know Scott McLaughlin and I have had so many conversations around sit in your best. Like if he ends up down the back in the grid or Oscar Piastri last season was, you know, 15th off the grid, had to win or had to come like in the top. I'm terrible at remembering yeah. all that, clearly. Yeah, he had to he come. He had to do something. He had, he had to qualify, to something, yeah. Something to win the whole championship, right? And, um, you know, my message to him was you can't try and get third or whatever it was. You have to focus on best execution and trust that that's the best that you can do. Now, Oscar had the courage to say to his engineer, don't tell me where I'm sitting in the race. I don't want to know. That's taking my focus to outcome. Mm. I want to sit on what's the best I can do each lap, each corner, each straight. What is What process, what does it look like for me to best execute my process? And you hear him in the race coming up to the finishing line going, have I done enough? Because he was so committed to just sitting on best execution, knowing that the result would take care of themselves. And Richmond lived that in every part of their club where other people when the going's good yes we're mindful and it's all about doing your best when we lose we give you a kick up the ass and tell you you were not good enough and you need to do better so yeah that's 
A lot. That's a really long answer. No, it, it makes answer. complete sense. And honestly, that's I was probably not knowing the answer, but I know exactly where you're coming from because I have been at places that is exactly that. You know, it's yeah. so easy to do things when things are going well. And, you know, I answer those questions really long-windedly because I, I want anyone to hear this message because it doesn't matter if you are a tradie or you're in the workplace or you play local footy or local golf – when you start stepping out of this ridiculous focus on outcomes, I've got to get that promotion, I have to do this, what if I don't do that? And you drop out of that fear of failure and you step into what does it look like for me to do my best in this moment and, and what does it look like for me to best execute this conversation, you know, this swing on this golf club. doesn't matter what level you are. When you do that, oh, gosh, it can be so freeing. Episode 111, Lin Jong. Well, there's a pretty evident story that's quite well known to, to Western Bulldog supporters and, and we all know the 2016 year and what transpired with, with the, the premiership there. But that year and that campaign was, you know, you're in some incredible form um, and I think you know what I'm alluding to here, but that, you know, the story of you injuring yourself, I think in one of the, the first finals over there at, um, against West Coast, um, breaking the collarbone, going and playing in the VFL Premiership, coming back and, and nearly getting there for the AFL Grand Final. Um, would you be happy to talk us through that story, like what, what, how it all played out at that time, the ins and outs and, and maybe the things that we might not have even known about coming from, I suppose, even that year, how you're feeling and, and what you're going through at that time? I guess so. That year is probably you know, my best year of footy and then sort of things went a bit downhill there. But as a fringe player, I finally felt comfortable and set in the team um, not having that angst every week, am I in, am I out? Um, and then in the final, um, yeah, just weird to think back on, but was, was a starting midfielder in that team um, and, and broke my collarbone in the, uh, in the second quarter and um, was, was, was really shattered, quite shattered, obviously. Um, not sure if anyone's seen, but tear, tear, like crying on the bench, thought that was my last game, um, possibly for the Bulldogs in general. Um, and then we... Uh, they say you'll be back in a couple of weeks, and and at that point, I'm just like, no, it like it's a broken collarbone. But get the red eye home, um, arrive at a six a.m. Um, booked in for an operation at four p.m. the next day. Put the plate in, um, and it was sort of just we'll see how we go from there. And then um, um, missed the next game, um, which we played against Hawthorne in the um, in the final. Um, and then uh, we had GWS in the prelim the next week, which um, which uh, I had to do a fitness test for, and it was the worst fitness test I've ever done in my life. I had Joel Corey there, pretty much just punching me in the collarbone, um, just because I needed that to make sure I could I could get up and, and mentally I knew I was ready. And then um, if we if we actually lost in the final, I wouldn't have played in the VFL Grand Final. Um, but then obviously the boys end up winning, so. Um, I actually had a slab of beer with my mates watching in case we lost and then obviously had the, uh, the old spag bowl next to me as well um, and boys got up in a great win and so I was sort of like, yep, ready to play in the VFL Grand Final. Um, get to the game um, and the physio comes up to me and they're like, oh, um, the, medical, the me- medical team want to, uh, want to strap up your other shoulder and I was like, no, like, I don't want to do that. If I do that, 
it's as if I'm injured and I'm coming in this game saying I'm not injured. And they said, no, no, we really think you should do it. I'm like, no, don't want to do it. And then eventually they sort of said, we'll do a minimal taping. If you don't like it, um, just rip it off. It doesn't even matter. Um, And so I'm like, yep, all right, sounds good. So first sort of first bounce walk out there and Casey just (laughs) straight into me. I didn't probably... I probably wasn't too ready for that. I didn't think they uh, they would have uh, wanted to go after me like that. Um, but they just kept on going after the one with the uh, with the strapping on it, um, which was the wrong shoulder at this stage, isn't it? This which is was the, the wrong shoulder. Yes, yeah. yes. And just going up, like just I'd kick it, and then four seconds later they'd come up and just bump me, and 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 um, I was, someone did tell me from the from the Casey team that they was they were told to go after me. Um, which is fair enough, um, and then um, yeah, happened to play a, a decent game, and and my shoulder was absolutely fucked. My my good shoulder, <laughs> the one that that my you know, non broken collarbone side was absolutely fucked. I couldn't couldn't lift it for for three or four days because they just went after it so much, and then uh, we had to rescan the collarbone, and it was bent to shit. So um, so <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it. So just to recap that story, which is unbelievable, you've played in a elimination final, I think it was over in WA, break your collarbone, fly back, get the surgery done. Two, two weeks later or three weeks later, you're back playing? Uh, two weeks. I like to – it sounds more impressive. I missed one game, so I think that's okay. a bit that's very impressive. That's you miss one, anyway. You missed one game, <laughs> you come back – Play in the VFL Grand Final. You don't just play well; you actually get best on ground. And the one of the best tricks of all time that we've seen is the medical staff actually uh, strapping the wrong shoulder for that game, which end, inevitably end up actually fucking your other shoulder. But to this day, like that's actually got to be one of the biggest flexes of physio staffs of all time. Like I just still underrate that so highly. Yeah, I think someone pointed. I think a journo might have pointed out actually because there was a picture of me. With my collar, with the sling on my right side, and then my left side strapped, and um, yeah, and then I think that's sort of when it caught along. It's on Twitter, and then people started realizing, and and um, and I, I honestly don't know if I would have lasted the game if I didn't do that because that would have just like my, my the plate bent as a like <laughs> like without them going after that shoulder. So I, I, I honestly don't think I would have made it through. What? did it get to you for that like what was your experience as much as these were physical injuries it sounds like they were having a lot more of a mental impact um than they were physical yeah it was um it sort of started becoming a lot worse in in 2018 2019 um um, like to a point at 2018 um um i was seeing a a psychologist and a psychiatrist and and they're saying you, you need to stop playing footy like if you want to get better um you know, you got to put that aside and, and focus on your mental health. And and at that point, I was probably still a bit naive um, in ter- and probably a bit still uneducated in terms of mental health. And I'm like, no, like I, I have to play. It's my job. You know, that's what I get paid to do. That's what my teammates expect of me. Um, um, and 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 I was out of contract at that point. So it's like, well, I'm not going to come out and say this um, um, because they're just not going to offer me a contract. You know, they're going to which is, you know, a really bad stigma with mental health, but that's 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 what my my uh, thinking was. And then in um, in 2019, um, 
I guess, you know, after getting injured again and then having to come back through the VFL, um, I, it got to a point where, um, you know, as a general sense, as footy players or, or any sports players, you, you, play, you play a good game, you're happy with yourself. You play a bad game, you're not happy with yourself. And that's just how, how it sort of worked. And then got to a point where I was, you know, actually playing quite well and, and I'd get in the car and I was with my ex-partner and I said, something's really wrong. Like, I'm, I feel like fucking miserable. Like, I've, I've just been sort of best on ground in that game and, and I don't know. I, I don't know what, what this feeling is and, and, and it was fucking scary at that time. But, but then that's when I sort of took it more seriously, um, which, you know, looking back, there could have been a lot of things done better, but that, that's how I dealt with it. And, and then at that point, um, I said, I, I, I really do think I need to stop playing and, and, and listen to the people who, who know what they're talking about. I suppose getting to that tipping point and a stage where you're actually going through that, like what did you do to get yourself back to a good frame of mind and, and be, I suppose, more holistic with your mental health? Like what did you have to learn? What were the things you put in place? What worked best for you? And, and what did you need? Was it, is, is it a good support network around you? Is it having people that you trust in or is it just being that final like voice of when you say like, hey guys, like, like fuck, I am actually struggling and you realise that people actually just want you to be be better, that makes you more acceptable to go and seek help? It, it, it is actually a whole mixture of, of what you just mentioned. Um, I guess originally was, was the, um, was, it was a diagnosis, I suppose, where it's, where it's like you, you do have depression and, and, and that, you know, hit me really hard. Like that was sort of like what's, what's my life come to and, 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 and then that sort of hopelessness of, of this is how I'm going to feel forever. Um, and then um, I guess, you know, that acceptance stage was, was a really tough thing for me um, and and being footy, but in, in the AFL world, you know, what y- y- you're expected to go out in public and for everyone to know that you have this about you, which you might not like it, but that's just sort of, you know, how, how it is. And then the, the quicker I was able to accept it and say, you know, this is who I am. Um, when, I, when I was able to tell the boys, this is how I'm going, um, you know, just being embraced with walking, up, walking arms and, and saying, we've got your back, you know, you, you've got nothing to worry about. Um, um, and, and so that was sort of a big part in coming back and even my sort of my change of perspective on things and, and a lot of it, I think, Growing up through footy um, was I likened my footy, my football balling ability and how I played to, to my worth as a person, um, which is crazy to think of now because it just doesn't make any sense. But when you're so invo- heavily invested in football, that's what you sort of think of yourself and, and I guess that's what the general public, you know, how, how you're valued in, in society. Um, but... But it took a lot of, you know, talking with, with the right people and, and finding the right balance and, and, and you know, trying, trying different medications, for example. Um, and um, so, yeah, I finally, finally managed to find the right, um, the right balance in my life and in, 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 you know, what I was doing and, and how I was thinking especially. Um, and then once it got to that point where I could say, you know what, I'm ready to play footy and and – it actually was bizarre because the less I cared about footy and it was the better, the better my performance was, funnily enough. 
Um, and so, yeah, once I came back, it was just all about having fun again, um, not caring about my performance and, and it sounds a bit corny, but, um, finding happiness in other people's successes, you know, um, you're so, as I guess AFL players, you're, you're quite selfish people in that sense. And then, so once I could sort of just be happy and, and for, for my friends and my teammates and not be jealous or, or, or think. Episode 121, Dan Price. Uh, I remember waking up. Well, I didn't even wake up. I'd spent the night in my car, which was something I was doing fairly regularly, um, just through the shame of, you know, showing my face. I thought I was just a burden to everyone around me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I spent the night in my car behind my office building in Sydney. And um, when it ticked over to 5 a.m., I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore, you know. Um, and I walked myself up to the Sydney Harbour Bridge um, with the intention of, of taking my life, you know, I climbed the, the outside um, of the fence and walked to the middle of the bridge and was there to, to yeah, to end it. And, um, mate, it just all made sense in that moment. You know, I felt like um, it was the right thing to do by myself and everyone around me. I kind of had come to this place where I was like, oh, well, you know, you had you had like 27 good years and then a few bad ones and, you know, you had a good crack, um, you know, time to go, life's not for everyone sort of thing. And and it's really, really sad looking back, like it's hard to talk about still, um, even though I, I talk about this quite regularly, um, mate, because I was in a lot of pain, you know, um, and unfortunately, um, because I'd gone, um, you know, I'd been suffering depression alone behind closed doors for so long that... Um, you know, my mind had turned against me and the suicidal thoughts made sense and I thought they were true. But, mate, very luckily, as you know, this is, you know, it's a happy ending to what could have been a very, you know, sad sad and very common story, um, which is why we're really here to talk about, you know. Um, mate, I was within seconds of jumping. You know, I'd taken off my watch, which was a pretty, you know, nice thing that I'd bought that my brother really liked. My younger brother's five years younger and he loved it. I took it off and I sat it on the railing next to me and that was kind of, I was leaving it for him and I was ready to jump and um, I was surrounded by sirens. And before I knew it, there was a cop um, yelling at me through the fence, urging me not to jump. And I ended up uh, having a 20 minute conversation with, with that police officer, Aaron Trevitt, who's now a pretty good mate of mine actually, which is really special. And um, mate, he just, he just told me that he was there for me, um, that everything was gonna be okay for the first time in my life, I felt completely exposed and vulnerable. Like I felt like I'd hidden it all until then and no one really knew. <laughs> and um, although I was petrified, I kind of, he just had a way of, of holding space for me. You know, he wasn't judging me. He was telling me that there was a lot of support out there and he's seen people come back from where I came back from and that I could get my, my life back on track and that the things I was saying to him weren't true. He's like, you know, you've got a lot of family and friends that love and care about you. I know that. And Mate, um, he was able to spark a little bit of hope in me for maybe, maybe he's telling the truth and maybe there is some more life to be lived here and made a step back over the, um, the railing and let him hold me against the fence and, and um, told him that I wanted to be rescued. And um, yeah, they came and got me. And um, mate, look, the, the rest is history, which we can talk about. Obviously, it's a big part of the journey was, was my healing from that. It's very traumatic. Um, you know, the rescue itself was, and then, you know, taken away in an ambulance under the Mental Health Act to, to a psych ward. And 
um, and everything that goes with that. Um, it's a very intense experience, but it was made it's what I needed. I wouldn't be alive without emergency services and and the healthcare system. That's one hundred percent sure. And yeah, mate, I um, I'll I'll kind of leave it there and and let you ask any questions about where you want to go next. But it's um, mate, I know it's an intense story. Um, that you know, hopefully, will resonate with your listeners and, and you know help people see that you know you can get through these hard things um, in life is really why I share my story, mate. It's it's the number one thing. Most of the time, people just need an ear, and that's why mm. I think therapy is so amazing. Like, sure, they navigate and they're very good at what they do, and they can really help you uncover things um, in your past or trauma and join the dots. But a lot of my sessions, I'm just like, I just need someone to listen without trying to fix me. Like, mm. and it's so like, cause I've been on the other end of that too. And I'm like you, I try to fix people sometimes. I'm like, Dan, stop doing that. Just listen, Just stop throwing, you know? Um, cause I think it's human, like it's, it's innate that we want to try and help. Um, but I, I agree sitting back and just listening, um, and just letting that person know that you're there from them. Like my uh, fiance, Sarah does that for me. Like, and I'll say to her, I'll say like, I just, there's a couple of things going on that I just want to download. I don't, you know, we don't need to have a big conversation about it. Just just kind of want to lay it out there so you know where my head's at. Episode 108, Hunter Johnson. Hey, mate, let's talk about um, you today and all the incredible things you're doing. Um, it, yeah, it, it really is inspirational. It's something that, to be honest, I admire, I love um, creating, you know, healthy masculinity in, in young men and something I'm extremely passionate about. But I must admit, it's still something that I really don't know a lot about. I feel like I... I I am a healthy man. I feel like I am, but I, I also question some things. And even having this chat today, um, you know, made me reflect a lot on what it was like growing up for me and how I've probably grown up over the years and how we all grow up over the years and how our surroundings um, shape who we are. And, and yeah, to give context of, of what you do at the man cave and what you do with, with stuff and everything else you do in your life, that is the main focus, creating these these safe places for, for young males. That's it, mate. And I think I've had a, probably a very similar journey to you, mate. Um, I think the models of masculinity that we inherited from our dads and our grandfathers are very different to the models of masculinity that, you know, the next generation of young men are inheriting. And I think it's it's confusing. You know, we're in a time where it's post the Me Too era. There's a whole movement around gender equality. Um, there's, you know, Black Lives Matter. There's like discussions of privilege and power and entitlement, um, as well as toxic masculinity. Um, and these are just, you know, words and phrases that we didn't grow up with. Um, and, you know, I, if I reflect back on my high school, it was just about social survival. You know, it was just working out who did I need to be amongst the boys to be able to get through, you know, whether that was have be the best at sport, have the best banter, you know, or just find whatever my niche was so that I could fit and feel safe with my mates. Then that was the way that I got through it. And, and I think that's, you know, we, we work with thousands of teenage boys now and you just watch the same story playing out. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that with you, Dil, just both our experiences growing up and then, you know, also what we're seeing now to, to be a good man in 2021. Mate, there's so many questions that I've, I've got from that one little intro, but I, I suppose I'll start with, with, a big, with a big hitter for, for, for males in general. And I think for me, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, for, for a long time, toxic masculinity, I was like, what, what is this? You know, I don't know what this is. I don't, I don't get it. I, I have no idea what's going on here. But I think as I've gotten older and matured, I've, I've realised it's, it's not personally yourself. It's, it's probably a culture that we've grown up in. 
And it's hard to identify that when you're in it and you are a man and you don't know what it's like to not be a boy or a male. Um, but to this day, I still find it really hard to articulate what that is. What is toxic masculinity and what is a healthy masculinity? Yeah, it's so layered, isn't it? Like even the words toxic masculinity just feel a bit edgy. Um, so the, the way that I think about it is um, we're not, first of all, we're not saying masculinity is toxic, but what mm. we're saying is there are certain components of the masculine experience that are destructive and they are things like very homophobic behavior, uh, real strong beliefs in like real gender norms, um, very much a big believer in like privilege and entitlement or um, power power dynamics um, or just um, it, it becomes about dominance and control and um, you know I'm sure from both our lived experiences we've both been you know um, impacted by that but probably also been the perpetrator of that too uh, in ways that are really unconscious to us and so you know we if, you know if we think about where you know we're a couple guys you know however old we are I'm, I'm 30 um, it's hard enough for us to navigate it as blokes at this age as adults. Imagine being a teenage boy trying to navigate your brain developing, your body developing, you want to fit in at school, you've got social media. Um, suddenly now you're being labeled as, you know, all, all men are toxic in, in some ways, um, whether you understand that or not. And it's just incredibly confusing for these young men. So what we really try to do at, at Man Cave is just really simplify it and just go, hey, we're not saying all men are toxic, but what we're saying is there are certain things um, that we may have done in our life or may be impacted by that aren't helping us be the best men we can possibly be. And that doesn't mean we have to throw out all the fun, cool things about being a bloke out the window, but we're just providing an opportunity for us to expand more of our humanity. And just to do that in a way that's like not showing how woke we are, we're not virtue signaling, but just making it really accessible to young men. And, you know, I think the flip side of that is healthy masculinity for me is just um, the, the characteristics of a, a healthy, flourishing human being, someone who can, you know, is kind, they're honest, they're res resilient, um, they can deal with adversity, um, they're generous, you know, they're determined and disciplined. It's, it's you know, effectively the one and the same of being, a, a, as I said, a flourishing human being. Love it. I think you've, you've absolutely nailed it there. It's it's not the fact of, of condemning men and being like, hey, all men are, are bad, but it's identifying, hey, there is some really fucked up shit that, that men do. Let's not do that and let's be the best version of ourselves that we can. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because we live in a world now where cancel culture is a full thing, you know? And what we're seeing is, you know, people who did a tweet, you know, 10 to 15 years ago are now being cancelled because of a joke that they made that was relevant to the psychology and the consciousness of that time. And now they're paying for the impact of that, although they have, may have grown and developed. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because we're the generation where everything's been documented. You know, it's like the Facebook memes that come up and you're like, oh, oh yeah. my God, let me remove tag or remove post because it was just something you'll throw on over to your mate. Um, and the thing that I'm really starting to think through is like, you know, from a psychology point of view, what are the incentives for men to take accountability and responsibility for their previous behavior when the impact is or what potentially, and we hear this from boys, is there's no incentive for them um, because of cancel culture. They're just so petrified that they might step out of line, that they may say something that's inappropriate, that they might not articulate something that is very nuanced and specific, that then they'll, they'll just be seen as a bad bloke and won't be able to come back, which is just a 
crazy phenomenon to be in. And I say that not um, ignoring the responsibility that, that these boys need to take to create a better world for all of us. But I just think it's a really interesting thing that's not talked about. What is the antidote to cancel culture? And, and, and I just think that's where at an interesting time in, in society to, to reflect on questions like that. It's, I don't have the answer for it, to be honest. I, I really don't. I, it's such a, a scary thing. We're just, I think we're just such an inflection point for so many things in society. And I just don't know if that's COVID has exacerbated that. It's brought things forward. But, you know, I think if we bring it back to masculinity, we're at such a point of evolution, I think, you know, and, and I think, you know, coming back to what we joked about earlier is like, you know, banter is a way that guys connect and it, it's a way that we know it's almost like a disarming thing. It's like, can I trust you? Can I not? Um, and it's a way that we can kind of, play it safe with someone until we get to know them we can really trust and feel safe with them but Mm. also there's that whole other side to banter right where it just becomes about one-upmanship and just you know paying out your mate and then that becomes like the social currency of your your friendship group at times um so i'm just i'm I'm curious for you actually deal like growing up in a you know where footy was your kind of world and you know much your identity um, growing up and you know I love what you've done with with Dan with list cloggers and, and just everything like that how did you navigate um, yourself mate being someone with someone with such like kind qualities as what you have and then into like a real high performing very alpha environment how did you dance through that oh my we could and as I said before the reflection that I've had in, in the last little week leading up to this just thinking about it um there's some there's some things that I'm honestly not proud of as a, as a young bloke that I would have been like and and the way I would have treated people and and I think that I was definitely a stereotypical um, uh, younger male you know played footy and I thought with that that uh, the the alpha tag would would have to come with that and whether that was being um, dominant in my group and and taking banter too far and pushing the boundaries um, yeah there's things there that I, like again is it is it a part of growing up? But I also think that it's it's just something that, like what you do now, I didn't really have role models or or healthy masculinity in my life to actually know that that wasn't the right way to do things. Um, and I think it, it took for me to to really face some adversity when I got to football clubs and and be faced with it the other way from other people to go like, fuck, that actually makes me feel like shit. Like yeah. I really don't like these situations. I don't like being put in these situations. Um, I don't like doing things I don't want to do. You know, as a young 18-year-old kid um, coming from school, joining an AFL club and realising that what was the biggest problem for me was being liked versus being respected. And I've, mm. I've spoken about that a lot. And I think it's the biggest problem that young men yep. want. You said before, you know, you, you hid at school um, by just doing what you could to fit in and get by. And I think that's exactly what I did as well. Like I thought, well, this is what I have to do. I have to play footy. Talk to talk to the cool kids and and try and um, talk to girls to be cool, and then people will just leave me alone. And that's probably what I did when I got to a footy club. I was like, all right, well, uh, guys that play AFL, um, they gamble. That's cool. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start gambling. Um, they go clubbing. All right, sweet. Like that's cool. I'll start going clubbing. And it took me like probably two or three years to honestly work out. Like, fuck, man, I really don't like any of these things. Yeah, and I'm putting myself through hell to like try and fit in when realistically people don't at the, when it comes to it. And the biggest lesson I learned was people don't want people they like at the end of the day, they want people that they respect. Mm. Um, 
And when I looked at that and in situations in my life when I was like, well, do I like this guy that tells me everything I want to hear or do I like the person and respect the person that says, he tells me things that I don't want to hear but tells them to me because I need to hear them? Um, so that was probably a big revelation for me, just like, oh, well, fuck. For so long I've been doing things that I don't want to do and embarrassed to, to show who I am. But, um, yeah, I think it just comes from lowing and growing and learning and being putting yourself in different situations. Episode 86, David Butterfin. At that time, no one was doing anything like that. You know, cams had been a thing for a long yeah, time, but I yeah, suppose yeah. actually taking not only a football team, but like the high, you know, the coaches, the support yeah. staff, yeah. probably those camps, you know, I was lucky enough to go on a couple with you um, at Carlton. That was, it's nearly 50 people would come yeah, on a 36 hour trip across the world. There's always that nervousness. And I, it is just a relief when you get that plane back in the tarmac, when you land back from a trip, oh, God, <laughs> we've got everyone back. Um, you know, and I always had that element of nervousness. And going there, which, which is it's quite good for athletes who are not knowing what it's going to be like in altitude and some of the stuff that we did. It's that uncertainty, really, um, but it's in a really kind of undistracted environment. So there's risk perceived risk as well associated with that too so yeah you're right it does it, it kind of but in a way that's what sport you've got to have a go at different techniques that can actually have an influence as long as look the central priority of the well-being of the players is crucial it's crucial but it, it reminds you back at you know they were first introducing ice bars at north melbourne in the mid-90s and darren crocker who you know what are you doing this for, Butters? He looked at me as I had green horns growing out of my head. <laughs> and I said, come on, this is, you know, this has been going for a, you know, a long time. You know, it goes back to the Greeks and doing the hot bars. And anyway, so we, that's where we started doing the kind of the, the, cold, the cold therapy stuff and cold water immersion. And then obviously down at uh, uh, Kerford Road, Corey McCoonan still has a go at me at that. He goes, Butters, you were mad then. I think you still are mad, but you, st- you used to get us in the water all the time. And it's really just kind of that, that, that evolved. But if we don't do those things, how do we actually you know, improve performance and uh, go to the next level? So I think that's something, uh, you know, looking back now that I'm so happy with it, that I got to experience with you. And I realize now probably the benefits of it was at the time when you're a player, you think, fuck, why is this bloke making us do all this shit? Like, yeah. why are we like going out? Like, why are we climbing this mountain? Why are we. Um, you know, swimming out in the ocean at pitch black, 5 a.m. Yep. around Kerford Road. But it is that mentality and it's making yourself uncertainty. And I think that's something that I really yep. learned from you um, is the way you did things. And this is probably thinking about when you first came to Carlton, you always know people from other clubs. And the one thing you'd be like, oh, what's Butters like to the Collingwood boys? And they'd say one thing, don't ever ask Butters what the session is that you're doing. <laughs> so there was this rule. Did they really? There was a rule before oh, you right. even got there that was when we do a running session, you would, you know, get everyone on the line straight mm. after. You'd mm. probably you'd tap into your, yeah, yeah. your psyche yeah. and you're like, boys, on the line. And we'd just be standing there going, fuck, like, <laughs> what is we this? could be out here yeah. for three hours. Yeah. We could be out here till tonight like I don't know how long this is going to go for yep. I don't know when we're going to finish I don't know how, how hard we're going mm. and it was the most uncomfortable feeling in the world <laughs> so why I, I know I probably just wrapped it up then but why did you do that well that's a really good point Th- there needs to be that element of vulnerability in us you know and I think that when there is a kind of perceived risk and the uncertainty life's like that we don't know what's ahead of us so really that, what it can do is that you can actually conjure up ruminate oh this is what can happen and actually anxiety can come up upon us however when we let go 
and we surrender and just go for it it does change your mindset and that's how we build our resilience you know in a way that okay this is okay and once you have that trust then you can actually go that next that next level and what it does when you overcome that that challenge or that adversity it becomes a wonderful reference point you know when you're experiencing that real discomfort the you know, the physiological stress that you're feeling how i've overcome that so next time it comes you've been there before so it's not foreign so that's why that's how we can kind of raise the bar or build our capacity so that was kind of like it was a mindset but it was also a physiological thing we're trying to change and challenge as well because what happens is when we know there is a kind of a, a threshold you know we kind of it, there is an efficiency in us but when we don't know we can kind of we can kind of break through that at times um and there is a fine line as well because you don't want to injure players but there is that precipice that's why it's elite that's why it's high performance that's how records are broken you've got to push those boundaries at times and really you know the mind and body are so closely connected anyway so that's what we're really kind of that's what we're doing and applying for sure i think that is probably the biggest thing about those trips that i look back now and you know for reference um some of those trips we went back to uh, Arizona, yep. Flagstaff, and we climbed Mount Humphreys, yep. which is, I think, is it 6,000 feet? It's actually, no, it's about 13,500 feet. Okay. It's, it's nearly 3,500 metres. Yeah, it was. And that was honestly yeah. one of the most challenging things I've ever done. And you could say, you know, why are they going over there to climb this mountain? It's not going to help them play footy. But that was probably more just to, for our minds than anything. Of course. Of course. Like, that was, that was challenging. And I thought that was the hardest thing I've ever done until the next day when we walked down Canyon. to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, yeah. And that was fun. That was like, I thought, oh, this would be a lot easier. Yeah. So just for reference for everyone, we 36 hours fly over to Arizona. Yeah. I think it was a six hour bus then to Flagstaff, a little town in the US. Yeah. It's snowing. Yeah. We climb this mountain. Yeah. How long would that have taken? Six hours. Six hours yeah. in the snow. Yeah. I've never seen snow before in my life. That was the first time I'd ever <laughs> been to the snow. Yeah. And the whole time we're stopping, putting, you know, high altitude. Um, yeah. yeah, and yeah, like just making sure we're okay. Yeah. Um, we get up there, amazing feeling. Think, okay, well, the camp's done now. We're, we're done with this hard stuff. Yeah. Until a meeting that night, thinking we might be getting on the beers and celebrating, saying, boys, get at the bus, <laughs> 6 a.m. in the morning, we're going to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. So we get to the Grand Canyon, yeah. walk down, which yeah. we thought, you know, it'd be a nice walk. Yeah. After an hour of walking downhill, it's actually quite tough. Yeah, it's up with the quads. That took, I think, nearly seven hours to walk back up or down and up yeah, together. It's, a, it's, a, it's really at a walking pace. It's about an eight or nine hour kind of you know, return trip. That yeah. right now, if I look back, was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Because we got down to the bottom and thought fuck that was pretty tough <laughs> and then you look up and you go fuck I've got to get back up there yeah. and the whole time you're walking you could be walking for three hours and it doesn't look any closer yeah and you you really really that's when you dig deep and you have to really just think fuck yeah. and I know people don't understand they might think walking up a hill isn't hard yeah. but it is was the hardest thing I've ever done well that, that and that in itself because that becomes that wonderful reference for you because when you are exposed to challenging times again you go back to that and what happens is that hey I've, i got through that i can get through the next one bring it on and really it is a mindset it's kind of like, okay i don't know what what i'm going to feel but you go back to those reference points and we have reference points all the time in our life and when you overcome those challenges and give that you know that i suppose that experience it becomes really quite 
um, fulfilling, but it, it cultivates your kind of your strength in yourself as well. Yeah, the, the belief in yourself you get from something like oh, that. Course, it's it's not something that you forget. You you know that you've done it and you've, you've ticked it off. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's really important. It's like when athletes get seriously injured. You know, you don't wish that upon anyone, but it can be a blessing at times. You know, we we can actually learn from adversity. We can turn kind of adversity into an advantage. And a bit like COVID. I mean, some people will come out of COVID doing really well. Um, they can turn it around. We just kind of change our narrative around that. Just on the training camps, one more, because there's yeah. a few more camps, I suppose. You know, you did millions in your time. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot. Can you talk us through some of the camps that um, were, I think probably you thought were most challenging that you've ever been through or, or done um, with teams or even with resilience builders you're doing now? Does anything stand out that you go, for, that, that one was the toughest camp we've ever done? Um, I'd, I'd have to say at the end of 2009 going to 2010 pre-season, I'd say that was a pretty tough uh, pre-season for the boys. I think that following year as well, uh, we had really tough conditions. We had minus 35 conditions. We had times that, you know, when we're climbing, you know, a hundred kilometre winds, you know, going across the saddle, which you've walked across, um, really testing. But what was fantastic to see in that, in that trip is some of the, your stronger leaders supporting the, the younger ones through, you know, really uniting, galvanising the group because they've been there, done that. Whereas the first year players, young guys have never done that before. So that it was their turn to actually, okay, I'm going to contribute, I'm going to help do some lifting here and share the load. And, and seeing that, I think, wow, because it was tough conditions, you know, hip height, snow at times, walking through that and, and climbing into altitude as well. So, I think it became, a, and we used that as a reference point going into you know the 2010 grand final. You know, we, we, we kind of talked about that a lot. Um, you know, what did we learn? And really, the next day we trained in the in the in the dome, you know, the NFL football stadium um, for two hours. The boys trained at a really high rate and you know, high level of intensity. What it demonstrates that hey, you did a climb for six hours, seven hours, then the next day you've trained. Now we we played a drawn grand final in 2010. We've got seven days to turn around. This is going to be a walk in the park. Yeah. So it became a reference point, a really strong reference point for them. And they, I said, you remember doing the, you know, Humphreys Peak? And they said, yeah, that was shit, but I hated it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I said, but remember what we did the next day? They said, yeah, we trained and trained really well. Great intensity. Mick got them going. Boys dropping about. And really, we, we spoke about that. So look, okay, you, you did that within 24 hours. We've got seven days to turn around. We're in another grand final. So basically, it becomes reference points for you when you've had challenging times. Or you go the narrative, oh, God, we're going to play another grand final, won't be ready. So it's really that, going back to what you said before, it's that choice. We're free to actually make the choice of how we respond to, to circumstances. When a lot of people speak about that drawn grand final, after the game, I think St Kilda were actually in better shape. Like, they had less injuries, I think, than Collingwood. There was yeah. a few guys that were banged up, I think. You know, Penderbury was sick. Yeah, he was sick. Um, there was a few other guys. Yeah. You had a yeah. change in the team as well. Yeah. Yeah. So. On the, from the outside, it actually looked like you were more um, unsettled, I suppose, yeah. than what St Kilda were. Yeah. But yeah. going back now, like to hear that that was what you referenced back was the pre-season yeah. and recovery through that week to get ready. And, and it's funny because, I mean, I don't know what St Kilda did, but I know where we were at, we were very comfortable where we were at. You know, we kind of, we felt that reassurance and we had that kind of belief that, you know, we're going to go out in that game and whatever happens, we'll do the best we possibly can. And I think the players really believed that. And it's like killed a bit as well. They bet they were too good on the day. But on that day, we're going to do everything we possibly could, squeeze themselves to the point where, okay, we're not leaving anything in the tank. And there was that kind of belief in them. You know, I think you could sense it. You could sense it in the staff. You could sense it in the players as well. 
episode 120, The Imperfects. Okay, so yeah, i got three you, questions for you okay. again, if you feel comfortable. Okay. There's, yep. It's forced vulnerability does not count. Um, <clears throat> question number one. Well, you've already answered question number one, I think. What, uh, what is your greatest insecurity? But you yeah. might have another one you want no, to No, yeah, so, that would, so there, that would definitely be it, yeah. Okay, there's one. Okay, option. we're done. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a great app. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait to get that one out there. Uh, question number two. Uh, vulnerability can also be a really positive share. So mm-hmm. what are you most proud of? Mm-hmm. And question number three. What experience have you grown the most from? So there are your three options. And again, it's not compulsory. Cool. I like, the, I like question two and three. I think they've probably got the same meaning of what I'll, I'll talk about um, so what was the question again uh, what are you most proud of most proud question of? number two yeah cool um, yeah so for me something I probably haven't spoken about like a lot at all and I think it sparked on the show and even talking today to you guys about how vulnerable you've been with me um, I can already feel the tone of my voice change a bit. When <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, it's crazy how quickly this, yeah. this happens yeah. But um, even Zach Butters come on the show, you know, last week as well, and he spoke about his sister and what mm. they'd been through with, um, you know, addiction and those sort of things. And I was sort of sitting there the whole time, like empathising with him, going, "Oh, you know, I can't imagine what that's like." But um, I knew exactly like what he was talking about. Mm. Um, so yeah, I thought so. For me, like to go back um, at the start of this year, I had a pretty big thing happen with my old man. Um, where he was like really struggling with like mental health and depression and anxiety and um, I suppose that was all fueled by alcohol um, and he's had you know just to put this in as well like when we knew the podcast I spoke to my dad before this and he was like mm-hmm. really really keen for me to talk about it um, he's going really well at the moment so it's right. awesome and um, yeah I suppose he had a really bad relationship with alcohol and um, I suppose it got to like when we talk about vulnerability um, growing up it was something I always knew, but it was something that I could never have those conversations about with him. And I like was too, you know, we, we just had a surface level relationship where things just flowed and I wouldn't bring up hard things because it was too hard to talk about and, and get What age are we talking here? Like during your teenage so years? So just you, my whole life. I knew, yeah, okay. Yeah, like, you know, from speaking to him, he had had these troubles since he was 16. Right. So they're like, my whole life I knew that there was it, was, it just wasn't normal. Like I knew, you know, I'd go to friends' houses and I was like, that's, you know, my dad doesn't, you know, do that. Yeah. And these sort of things. And um, yeah, I suppose it got to a bit of a pinnacle um, at the start of the year and it was a really like weird time for my family because my mum and dad were no longer together and they're really amicable, but, you know, mum and they, they weren't living together anymore. And um, my sister was just about to have a baby. So she was like two weeks in for having a baby. So the few things were going on with dad and I was like, fuck, you know, like my whole life, to that moment my mum had always just bailed me out of things you know like when shit's going wrong get mum to come and fix it like that's how it works and I suppose I just had like an epiphany with it and I was just like this isn't like my mum's problem anymore like you know like it's not worked in the past um it's not the way like it hasn't fixed the problem um not that you know by no wrongdoing of anyone it just hasn't worked as in your dad was still struggling with yeah alcohol, really struggling with it yeah he was really struggling and it was just as, as i said something that we weren't really talking about and um yeah it got to a stage for me where you know a few incidents like had happened and i just was like fuck this like i've just got to do something um so yeah like i you know grabbed him and we'd had a few chats and it was really hard at the start. Like, imagine mm. you know, talking to your mm. dad about this oh when you've like, waited like 28 years to sort of say something. 
And like, it wasn't like a dream. It like, I think a really good part for anyone going through this is like, it wasn't a dream scenario. Like it wasn't like, oh yeah, cool. I agree. Like let's sort this out. Mm. Yeah. Um, it took, you know, probably three weeks of like back and forwards and other things happening for me to finally, you know, get him to agree to come and see a doctor with me. How, how did you, if you don't mind me asking, how yeah. did you first, yeah. first like broach? Cause it, that it's the first contact, which yeah. is the really scary bit. Yeah. It got to a stage where like, I couldn't not do it. So like mm. just, you know, I just got into a stage where I just had to, um, yeah. you know, I had like a few other people like calling me and sort of like, um, you know, expressing to me that I needed to step in sure. with okay. things. And, and as I said earlier, <clears throat> it wasn't something that I was always good at, like having those conversations. But um, I knew at that stage, like my sister was just about to have a baby. As I said, my mum was really supporting her. And I was like, I can't fucking let them be, you know, in, involved in this. And um, yeah, so like, you know, we, we had the conversations and, and, um, and kept going with it. But yeah, it was just like a really, really um, fucking just like tough time. Like just like having those chats because like, you know, you, you are having like really hard conversations and you sort of feel like the world's like crashing around around you. But like, um, I think like sometimes when you don't have a choice, it's like the best. Because you just know you just got to get it done. It's like yeah. that fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, fuck yeah, this is like, I've got to do this. Mm. And I think one of the things that I really liked, weirdly really liked out of it, and I've listened to a few people of your chats and I can really relate to this, is like as shit as this situation was, it was like I could also almost catch myself like sometimes like driving home being like, you're a fucking mad cunt. Like <laughs> you, you are the toughest cunt in the world. Yeah. Like I was yeah, sort of yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talking to myself, just being like, you are seriously like yeah. something special. Like, how are you doing this? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. how are you, yeah, you know, just how do you rock up? Like, oh, there was yeah. just like this inner monologue, like coming in, like talking to myself about it. it. And I, I relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I suppose like, yeah, the, the, the thing as I said before about my and my dad's relationship, we'd never really spoken about these things. And, you know, the hardest point for me was like dropping him off at um, the, the rehabilitation clinic. Wow. And I remember it's just like, just sitting there, just like crying together, just like. Because then you yeah, both were. You and yeah. your dad. Wow. And I've never seen my dad cry, like ever. Really? And it's funny because like, in a such a shit time, it was almost like the best time. Yep. Real. And also the fact like, at this stage as well, no one else knew what was going on. So like, my mum and sister had no idea. Because mm. like, my sister, like we would go from like, visiting Jess in hospital and then like dropping dad back at the um, clinic mm. and and not telling them and not telling them yeah um, and not because like I, that wasn't like I'm not trying to say like I was a hero or anything it was just like as I said earlier for so long I'd probably I just wanted other people to fix my problems for so long that I was like fuck I don't need like why do I need to bring other people down with me like you know, we've got it under control. I don't need other people worrying and stressing at the same time. When you, uh, when you say you, you, you want other people to solve your... Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I just think like for so long when I was younger, like if I had a problem, mm. I think I'd put my problem on someone else mm. and be like, come on, make me feel better about this. Oh, like, sure. you know, like, yeah, make, yeah, yeah. come on, make me feel like it's not my or fault. You said before you know? your mum would sort yeah, out Yeah, she just, your mum would always come and be like, oh, it's not your fault. You know, like yeah. we can fix this, we can do this. Yeah, gotcha. But yeah, I suppose it just got to the, the point where I was just like, we have to do this and we did it. And yeah, that, that moment I spoke about earlier was like, 
was fucking massive, like, for me, um, just in terms of and, – and us, sorry – in like our relationship and it's just funny like in such a fucking shit hard time like it's nearly like my favorite time because mm-hmm. like it was for like the first time we'd been like fully um connected with it and yeah like i just i think like you know my dad and my relationship's been like so good you know since like you know he's six months clean we've never been closer we've never been more vulnerable um wow. and yeah like it's I've just i think for so long I just put off that chat for like that long and to not have it there anymore and just be open and people know about it and like that's probably why I want to talk about it today because it's just sometimes when people know your, ins- your vulnerabilities and your insecurities insecurity just makes it so much easier you're just like so oh much. fuck I don't have to talk about that any- like I don't have to hide that anymore yeah. hold on to it yeah. Um, yeah you don't have to pretend yeah. like you don't know what someone's talking about when yeah. they bring it up and you can yeah. context of my dad as well like you know he's a three-time premiership player, like very public image. Like he's one of the best people to ever bear. And he is like, he's the best, most beautiful person in the world, but obviously I had a trouble with, you know, mental health and drinking. So like for me, people would always be like, Oh, that's the best, you know, he's so good. Um, but I knew that there was other struggles that they didn't know about. Mm. So it was really conflicting for me. Cause like, so who's your dad? My dad with Jim Buckley. So he used to play okay. yeah, for Carlton okay, right. and um, not Nathan. I was thinking, I was no, like, hang yeah, on, yeah. What, what have I missed? This is quite yeah. a yeah. big thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I missed um, Nathan Buckley's three premierships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not him. Mm. So it was like going through that, I suppose, um, with those bits. But yeah, like seeing how he's done what he's done now, like I'm just so proud of him. Like Amazing. it's just unbelievable. So and he must yeah. be pretty proud of you, mm. I would think. Ooh. Yeah. 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 I mean there's like a there's a there's a role reversal that happens mm. at some point there where it's Oh, like, I was his dad pretty much. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Looking after the guy who you always wanted to look after you. Yeah. Cuz our dads are just like on this pedestal of like you don't the dynamic is you don't really challenge your dad or your parents. Yeah. You don't really challenge them on anything. No. But mm. obviously it feels like you got to a point where you're like I'm an adult. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a really like, that's why that, that weird relationship it was bittersweet. Cause a part of me, I was like, fuck yeah. Like you've grown up and you've finally taken charge. Cause there were so many times things that in my life, like separate to this and just other things that I'd probably needed to step up to the plate and just, just failed at. Like mm. I just hadn't, hadn't taken control of and been like, Oh fuck it next time. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm. could have worked harder here, but I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, little things like that. But this was the first time where it was like, actually the, one of the biggest issues I've been through, but I'd actually stood up to it. And I was like, this is sick. Mm. Fucking amazing. Um, yeah, incredible. So, yeah, it was good. And it's funny, like, what do you say about, like, you know, the, our relationship now, it's never been better. But I always remember it was so funny sometimes at, like, these times where we'd be talking and no one really knew what was going on. And he'd, like, call me, like, asking for things. And I was like, you will like you're my dad you know like you don't have to ask me but like he actually did so like in a way like i was sort of his like guardian yeah so um yeah it was pretty cool like you know and our relationship's so good since and even for him like i called him yesterday and i was like fuck you know i've got this podcast from other feelings something might come up do you reckon i could talk about it and he's like 100 like go for it really cool which is massive for him because um i think this has been the one that's really helped him the most because people know like Mm. you know i I learned things about him in that that time that I'd never known like never even knew about him like you mm. know we spoke about him as a kid and you know things like so I was sitting through all the like psych meetings and doctor meetings mm. and um you know I learned like that he'd actually been 
to try and get off the drink um, with mental health and all that, like probably 10, 15 years earlier when I was a kid and had been there for one day and then went straight back, you know, to the pub because he just mm-hmm. couldn't deal with yeah. the, yeah, yeah. you know, the emotion and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think like even like going even deeper into it, you look at like a holistic level and, you know, I see someone fortnightly like, you know, you guys do just to keep on top of my life really mm-hmm. and just learn more about myself. And I haven't realised how much, you know, his role in my life has that's why I do what I do. Wow. And it wasn't, you know, like when I talk to people and like, you know, what Hugh does, like the reason I d- did that, I think looking back now, wasn't necessary for me. It was like to show him that if he would listen to something that I've done, he'd know that I'd want to help him. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. Gosh. To sort of put a beacon out there. Yeah. For just like, you know, oh, dad, I'm working with this mental health thing that mm. like, like dropping hints. Yeah, just like dropping hints sort of thing. Like yeah, yeah. look at these things I've done for him to then to be like, hopefully come. Mm. But I think, you know, if anyone is going through that situation, like sometimes you do have to be vulnerable and just do the hard, the chat. Do the yeah, big hard. Go in. Mm. So it's a really beautiful gift you've given to your sister as well. Mm. Like a, a, a grandpa who's clean yeah. for their grandchild. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. And yeah, even to say like with, you know, I, it's hard because I hate saying that the reality is, yes, he did have a problem with alcohol and stuff, but it was never like, I'm not making, he was the best dad in the world mm. as well. Yeah. So it's not like I didn't see it. Like he was always there. He was, you know, he's present in my life and, but just had a dependency on that, um, that was unhealthy. And that was probably the thing that hurt me the most was just like, you know, I wanted to help a lot, um, with it. So it's, I mean, it's, it's potent, who knows, but it's potentially, given your relationship with him that you maybe never would have had if never. you never got into trouble. That's my mm. biggest fear that, you know, if I didn't have, if I didn't have this conversation, what would have happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I honestly, like before it happened without, you know, being forced to happen or, you know, cause you always have a choice. Like you can always ignore it and keep mm-hmm. going. Um, yeah. The best things for me that have happened are like, you know, when I got fired from my job and had to, improve or you you know you get delisted the second time and you have to like look at yourself or these things that happen you go fuck i have to take that option um by no means am i trying to give advice here about anything but i think it's harder sometimes when you don't have a choice but still know that the the reward is there episode 123 hunter johnson and zach sidler yeah yeah i reckon you know a big moment in time for me was when bucks parties started to happen Mm. and um i remember um I was best man at my one of my best mate's weddings and um, there were strippers on the boat and uh, I was like, man, this is probably about four, three or four years ago and I was like, I just can't with – like it would feel more wrong internally for me to be there than feel right for me to connect with my mates. And I remember I there's this iconic moment where we were on like got on a boat, drove it around Manly and then um, parked in, had a few beers in Manly and then the boat was coming back with the strippers on it, which was a surprise for my mate. And I was like, oh, I just can't be on that. Like, I just can't be on that. But I was like, I don't want to make a scene. So I just like slyly like got my bag off the boat. And then there was this like literal iconic Swam moment. Back to yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then like the boat was just departing and it was this scene of like watching like, you know, some of my yeah. mates leave. Yeah. And then Your past a self. guy, yeah, a guy who used to be one of my best mates starts yelling out, faggot. Poof, die, gay, like as a joke, but like 
maybe not, you know, at the mm-hmm. same time. And it was a real kind of moment where I, I just felt so insecure because I was like, that is the guys who I've, you know, bled with on the sporting field. Mm-hmm. Like I've, you know, had some of the best nights of my life, traveled the world with. And there's this moment where they're really kind of departing. And I was like, but that's who I am in that moment. And then I went and met back up with them later. And, you know, about four guys pulled me aside and said, hey, man, like, just thanks for doing that because I actually felt really uncomfortable being there too. Mm. Um, So now in our friendship group, there's now a new portal that's opened where you don't have to just go that Mm. way. And I was like, fuck, man, I still feel so insecure about it. Mm. But, you know, that was a big moment for me. And, you know, now when I go back into those friendship groups, it's, you know, we talk about what was. We talk about all the stories. Mm. That's it. It's not what... You know, I'm not here right now talking about mental health, you know, vulnerability, emotions, um, the meaning of life, which I'm like, I'm drawn to that conversation. Um, so, yeah, I, I for a little, long time, I felt like I was straddling worlds. And, yeah, there's nothing wrong about that. Like, I still love my mates and it's just, you know, I'm a different person. They're different people. And, you know, I, I can still connect with them how I connect with them. And, and that's okay. You know, there are decisions that can be made that you can reshape the way that you're perceiving your own reality in many ways. And so as as dark and gray as Melbourne is, you surround yourself with the right people. Yeah. You know, you do the right things. You can you can create happiness for yourself in many ways. And so I think that that idea of, you know, chugging water when you know that you're in a certain space is the idea that where am I at right now and what do I need? What do I need is not something that people ask that much. They always go what do I want? You know, and what do I need is like where where are my resources at? What's what's going to be the thing that is going to actually help me rather than hinder me right now? And there's obviously a space for doing things that aren't necessarily that helpful for you all the time, but are going to connect you with people, or you're going to have fun in the short term, and you know, medium term it might not not be that good. But I think that proactivity, as Hunter is kind of talking about, is like knowing and allowing yourself to be in that space to go, what's happening for me right now. Where am I at? Who am I? What do I? What do I? What am I striving towards in many ways? And so I think that the reactive nature that I think men do f- far too much is I will wait until I'm sinking, until I start to swim. Um, and I think that finding a way to get on top of this stuff early by going, what are my intentions here? Mm. What am I striving for? And you know who who is this um, person that I am? moving towards what am i what am i becoming and how can i do this a little differently um i think that because those check-ins are so difficult for for lots of guys because Mm. it's a language yeah it's a language and a skill and a muscle whatever you want to call it that takes time to to get used to and as you said there you know at the start of this journey that we're all on especially as guys when you go 18 20 years without doing that you're just on autopilot for Mm. so long autopilot is you know, in certain instances like this, where we can just let our brains go, is beautiful. In other instances, where you just are, are just following for some reason and not going, is this where I want to go? Is this the stream that I want to go down? In many ways, that's when it kind of gets dangerous, I think. And so we want to get to the point where we are purposefully going, what path am I going towards, and why? And talking to people about that, um, because I think our own internal subjective frame goes. Uh, you only have so much information within your head and it's all biased as well. And so checking in with other people, whether it be a psych, whether it be a mate and just going, I just want to, you know, check this, confirm whether or not this is something that is just something that I've created or is something that I should be striving, actually striving towards. So when it comes to to things around 
rituals like Hunter is talking about, those are the things that are those guardrails that allowed me to flourish, I guess, in some ways, because I knew that regardless of how shaky everything felt, I had that security elsewhere. Yeah. I could, I could find that grounding. 